coming up. Readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb stormlight. Hone sympathy. Harness Sayadar and Sayadeen. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. Okay, what's up, First Ministers? This is Phantology, Stephen and Josh here with the final entry in the Powder Mage trilogy by Brian McClellan. We're talking Autumn Republic, the Autumn Republic, that is. So Josh, we had a rough start to getting set up. You had a bit of a a home accident. I have a fly buzzing around my head. That's driving me crazy. So it can only go up from here, right? You'd like to think so, Stephen. I really hope so. Yeah, I really hope the uh, the buzzing doesn't get picked up on the audio. But you know, you can only do so much when you're in a, when you're in a home studio. But uh, let's maybe move past that into the book. So, Flintlock Fantasy. This is the third entry. Obviously, we're wrapping up the first trilogy. Brian McClellan has since gone on to write three more books in the same universe, the Gods and Blood and Powder trilogy. And I think the second trilogy is better than the first trilogy. I think that this trilogy was really strong for a new author coming in, taking a stab at the genre, doing really well, obviously getting published, having a really unique take on the genre. And then I think the second trilogy is like where he really kind of finds his voice and, and locks in a bit more to, to storytelling. That, I mean, I'm not trying to diss on the first trilogy. I just think that I like the second better and i thought that this was a really strong start to brian's career but that's that's my take and i think there's a lot to like as and we'll get more into that i can't comment on the second trilogy because i haven't started it and probably won't start it until after the craziness that is the ending of the year you mean like all the all the new releases that are coming out yeah after rhythm of war and we get a new dresden like next week and we get yeah, sequel to Rage of Dragons and Rage of Dragons, the the, the third Poppy War, and you're not even you're not even uh, current on Joe Abercrombie, so you're yeah. not reading tr- the the Trouble with Peace, which came out earlier this week that I'm well into and loving. So look for that review coming out soon. But yeah, there, there's a lot to be excited about at the end of 2020. Maybe you know we had to go through all of the rough times that were the beginning of 2020 to be rewarded with the the fantasy book payoff at the end of the year that's probably a terrible take i'm gonna scratch that from a i I was just searching i was searching for something i don't know what that was yeah 2020 does not look like it's getting better anytime soon (laughs) but at least we have books to read in our you know to to distract us from our misery maybe (laughs) yeah but i had to constantly go back and remind myself that this is a first-time author that this is his first published series and it does not feel like that when you're reading it. There are some rough edges. Yes, it's not my top favorite all-time series. It's probably not even my top 10, to be honest. But it, for a first-time author, was exceptionally done. So that's a, I mean, that's a really good review. How many times do we look at a, the first thing that an author has put out 
and say, this is amazing. We love it. It's the greatest. Like we're saying Stormlight Archive is so great for Brandon Sanderson right now. Well, he's published like 10 to 15 books prior to no. even you know getting into oh, this prior. one. Prior to, right? So this is like nowhere near his first entry. If you look at Joe Abercrombie right now, he's coming out with this new fantastic trilogy. Well, he's written eight books prior, right? Dresden is awesome right now. Well, it didn't really start all that awesome, right? It took a while to really get into it. I mean, fight me, Dresden fans. But the point I'm trying to make is it takes a while to get there when you are a first-time author. So you having that opinion is a really strong review, I would say. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I went in my initial reaction video. I would criticize some things, and then I would always come back and say, but for a first-time author, what do you expect? You know, are they going to have pacing perfectly mastered for their first book? Of course not. Are they going to be able to handle every side character exceptionally well? Of course not. These are nitpicks for a first-time author, which I think lends itself to a really promising career. So I'm excited to keep following him. And he's writing a new trilogy. I believe it's in a different world. I think he said he's done with Powder Mage after these six. He's also written several short stories, which I haven't read, but I heard are, are pretty good. But he's writing this new series called uh, The Glass Immortals, I think. I, I want to say I just I pulled that out. But that's supposed to come out like 2021, a, a book there. So I'm definitely looking forward to following Brian's career. I think he's a very promising author. If if you haven't listened to our other videos, we talked about how he was actually a student of Sanderson's and you kind of see that in the way that he constructs his magic systems, especially there's a lot of similarities between this book and Mistborn, I would say, or this trilogy and Mistborn um, in terms of like setting up the government, kind of the general feel of the setting is similar. So you can see a lot of Sanderson influences, but he's also got a lot of really unique things that are his. Yeah. It's a harder ma magic system. Most of it is a harder magic system, I should say. There are some softer magic systems in there. So in that way, he's kind of a student of Sanderson as well as a literal student of Sanderson, right? Yeah. And his prose, again, isn't amazing, but it is kind of like Sanderson, how Sanderson talks about being a glass window that you look through and you see what's going on. That's the way he likes to construct his writing um, as opposed to a stain glass window which is like an author like maybe patrick rothfuss would do where you look through and see the story through a really pretty stained glass window yeah yeah so, so like rothfuss will have a very beautiful window that you're looking through and everything comes through perfectly whereas sanderson is really just trying to like put you right into it and say like here's what's happening and we're not going to distract with the prose we're just going to tell you what's happening in a very accessible way yeah, I agree. That's more of what uh, McClellan does as well. The stained glass window thing is is nice. Um, if, if you can do that, I think few can. It's very difficult to write a book to the point where the prose is actively contributing. I think what I look for in a book is just making sure that the quality of the prose doesn't detract. Like I'm totally fine reading a book if the prose is just there enough to get me into the action and say, here's what's happening. And you're like, okay, great. Like, the books are written real, in a real easy way to read, and I don't have to worry about like weird constructions of sentences and, and like awkward vocabulary. That's annoying and distracting, and I, and I don't like that. If authors are able to take the prose to the next level and write it in such a beautiful way or a witty, funny way where the language itself lends to the story, that's really cool. 
that's something that Rothis does amazingly. And I'm going to throw Abercrombie in there as well. Yeah. I think he's a total master of this like dark wit and humor that, that I mean, I, I guess I've plugged Abercrombie quite a bit, but I'm reading his book right now. So, so that's probably why. But uh, yeah, McClellan, uh, f- fantastic at just like putting you right into the action. Exactly. And there isn't anything majorly wrong with the books, I would say. I mean, we're going to get in. I do have some criticisms that I want to talk about when we talk about spoilers. But for anybody that wants to read this book, I would say go for it. Another member of Phantology, Ben, just finished the first book and he enjoyed it. And it took a while for him to get into it. And he was wondering, he texted me and he was. He said he was at 30% and he wondered if he should keep reading it. And I advised him that he should. I think that if you get through the first book, if you like don't enjoy the first book at all, then I don't think it gets markedly better throughout this first series. But I'd say at least finish the first book because it's quick and exciting and fun, if nothing else. And while there's a lot going on with the plot, there's always something exciting driving things along. I think you would agree with this because we talked about this in our review of Crimson Campaign, but it's really a character book. We we care about who these guys are. We feel like we understand them enough and we're in their heads and they seem like very realized characters. And this is a huge pro in McClellan's favor because this is not something that just any author can do. He does it awesome. And that's what drives the story along. So the characters are are what you're going to love, hopefully. And, And when Ben finished the first book, he said, I didn't love it, but I did like the characters. And so I said, well, if you like the characters, then you should keep reading because the characters stay really, really well done. And you get you get more pieces. You don't understand everything on them. After one book, you get more backstory. Obviously, they grow and they're very dynamic. So, yeah, the characters are fantastic. So before we get into the spoiler section of our podcast, if you like what we're doing here at Phantology, if you like our book reviews, if you're a fan of the genre, then check out more episodes. We've covered quite a few series at this point. We have a few. We're kind of like mid-series and we're going to continue to plug away on those. But if you like anything that we're doing, Check us out uh, on the internet at www.phantologybooks.com. All of our episodes are up there and you can I guess, just click into whatever series you're interested in. And we have most things covered by this point. If you'd like to chat with us, please do join our Discord. And we're all on there. We're fairly active. There is a growing community and we have different options if you'd like to read along on a book with us and get our comments that that's something that you can do. That's actually a Patreon benefit. And so if you want to support the podcast and you feel like we are even worth your money, which I mean, debatable, but if not debatable, Steven, <laughs> we, we put out good solid content, not debatable says Josh. So yeah, if you'd like to support the podcast, every dollar goes directly back into what we're doing to produce quality content and get this out to our our listeners as quickly as possible. So that would be something that we'd very much appreciate. If you are considering a audiobook membership, if you'd like to try out Audible, we have a partnership with them where you can just click the link in the episode description and it will take you to a page that you can sign up for a Audible trial membership. You get a free book and then we get a little bit of benefit as well. And that will also help 
the podcast. There's lots of ways that you can help out the podcast. And we, I mean, just listening, honestly, is like, we're, we're flattered. So we, we appreciate all the support. And sharing. If you, know, if you like it, uh, share it and tell your friends about it. Tell your fellow nerd friends about it. We're all here for the community. We love talking and we love hearing other people's opinions about these books that we like to come on and talk about. That's why we started this whole thing was to give us an excuse to get together every week and talk about nerdy fantasy things. Because what's better than that, right? <laughs> exactly. So, and, and Phantology is also supporting a charity. We're supporting Books for Prisoners. You can find that at booksforprisoners.net. This is a group that's been around since the 70s, and they are dedicated to providing books to incarcerated individuals to try to you know reduce rates of recidivism. Recidivism? What, what is the word? Yeah. Recidivism? Yeah. That's the word. Anyway, we're, we're trying to re, we're trying to um, reduce that, educate folks while they are behind bars, and this is a fantastic group that, um, with the donation, will send books to uh, to these guys who who really need it. So that said, let's talk some Autumn Republic. So after the events of the second book, the second book ended. Crimson Campaign ended on like somewhat of a cliffhanger, where we had Taniel running off after being captured by Kresimir. And then you had Tamis being successful. Um, and then he had got just got an alliance with the Delive guys who are going to come in and hopefully turn the tides of the war against the Kez, who seem to have an overwhelming advantage. And then off in Adapest, we actually had a little bit of an uprising internally. And there was a bunch of uh, a bunch of buildings were destroyed. And and there's kind of like a question mark as to what is going on here, because um, there's like some some mystical forces being involved and some bigger players are coming to the field. So going into book three, like maybe uh, what were you expecting, Josh, after after book two? Like, did you have any theories, inclinations of where this one might be going? Well, I had hopes and this is where I was a little bit let down because where I hoped the series was going wasn't really where it went. I hoped that we would be dealing with a grander scale. I hoped that the gods would get a little bit more involved, which they do, but yep. it's not at a very grand scale, right? It's more the gods, and we'll get to this at the very end when we talk about uh-huh. the twists and turns. But I was hoping that with Adam dying at the ending of the last book, that we were going to get more of like an epic, grand, godlike scale of how can we bring back our patron God that's kind of become our patron patron God, I guess, and kind of start dealing with forces of the universe. And we didn't really get that, which is fine. But I was hoping that because of the ending of the last book with Adam dying and that seeming like it was going to be a big deal, that we would get more of that. And we didn't really. And for the first 80% of the book, Adam wasn't really even mentioned, right? Maybe in passingly mentioned. Yeah, I, and this is something that I kind of struggled with as well. Maybe we shouldn't go there quite yet because, like you said, it is the end, and we will talk about it. But the God thing was a little unsatisfying to me. I thought the thing that I struggled with the most in the series was like, what is the conflict? Is the conflict versus the Kez? Because yeah. that seemed like that was always kind of the thing. But then they were just kind of like swept aside like, oh, the Kez had an internal revolution. And so 
they're actually like no longer a problem. And we're like, well, the Kez were the problem for the first two books. And that was always like, they were the big bad. They were winning everything. And Tamas, the entire second book was running from them. And now they're just gone. And this new <laughs> thing is, you know, the problems with the God and, and, and Charlemagne and, and this internal stuff. And so it's like, that was jarring to me that the, this change towards the end. I, I totally agree with you. And that was my other criticism of going into this book was it didn't really feel like there were villains. It felt like there were things that the heroes had to do to like be successful. You know, they had to win this battle or that battle and the Kez were the villains, but how villainous were they? They, you didn't really know their motivations. Yeah. You got that. They were maybe religious zealots a little bit because of how much they hated the gunpowder burning the gunpowder and stuff right and they were led by this crazy god and they were trying you know the first book they were trying to bring him back and i should correct myself i said charlemagne but he was more of the villain in the second book the god here is claremont right two long c names confusing so i apologize there but yeah the kez are basically like they have unlimited cannon fodder and they are going to win because they've got so many guys and They've got the wardens and they're bad, but like, who are they really? What's their motivation? It's hard to say exactly. And so maybe we were thinking like going to book three, it's like, okay, we're going to find out what's going on with the Kez. Like there's some reason maybe and and we're going to get some big epic showdown battle here. But honestly, like the whole war thing was just swept aside a little bit. And then the final confrontation was this thing that had kind of been lurking the whole time. And if you think about it, like there were hints and, and there were reasons why this whole political intrigue uh, God thing reveal made sense. But at the same time, it was strange to me that we would have this large scale change in the basic conflict of the series so late on in the plot. A way that this was done really well, and I don't want to give spoilers for this series, was but was the original First Law trilogy, right? You, you have um, a larger conflict in that. And then the last 10 to 20% of the last book, it kind of changed your perception of what the conflict was really all yeah. about. Right. Yeah. And that was yeah. done exceptionally well, like amazingly well. Right. Yep. Yep. I, yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of similarities there now that you yeah. bring that up. I mean, yeah, let's not say spoilers, but there was like this large scale war conflict throughout most of it. And then we got to some kind of resolution there. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, it's over, but actually, no, it's not over because we realize that there's actually been something else going on the whole time that's even worse than, you know, than than the bads, quote unquote, that we were yeah. fighting previously. So this felt a lot like that, only a few tiers down, right? Where it was like, okay, cool, this happened. Like, okay, the Kez finished up. Okay, we got a new god that we're going to have to deal with that we haven't really dealt with yet. But then they are dealt with and it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. let's back up and let's talk about some plot points before all yeah. this. Yeah. But this all happened because I thought that when Adam died, that was going to be the driving force behind this book. And it wasn't like at all. Right. And so that was yeah. my yeah. main problem with jumping into this book was I felt like a little bit of whiplash, I guess, mm. which which is, I think, common, right, for books that have a big epic ending to 
the preceding book and then you slow down a bit, right? And have to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. get back into the world a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to always it's it's tough to continue the tide of the climax of your previous book. Like you've kind of got to start off a book with a exposition, right? T- typically, I mean, see beginning of Rhythm of War. <laughs> no True. spoilers there. In- intro chapters are out, so read those if you're interested. Primer, I guess, from me. So one thing I did like from this book was. I felt like in the previous books, the characters, which are fantastic and my favorite part of the series, were very separated out to the point where they weren't like somewhere interacting, but there wasn't a whole lot of crossover. And I really like it when we have these multiple point of view type of books, when you have the same character, like two POV characters or more that are in the same scene. And so you're seeing a character that you see a lot of things through their eyes. If you see that person then through the eyes of another POV character, I think that's fun. I think that leads to a lot of interesting developments. And I think in this book, we had the characters just together on screen, on camera more. And I thought that was a big improvement in this book over the previous. I think that the two characters that did that the best for me was Flora and Daniel, right? Okay, okay. You always wanted them to sit down and talk, right? Throughout the whole rest sure. of the whole first two books and even half of the third or whenever they had finally had their conversation because yeah. there was so much left unresolved and they had seen each other what for like one scene. And then after that, Daniel was just avoiding her. Yeah. So that was a really interesting dynamic when they finally met up and talked. Their relationship is frustrating because like you say, like there was this huge thing in their previously great relationship with this infidelity that was never addressed. And it made kind of made sense why it wasn't like it was general poor communication, but obviously emotions were high over this. And there was a lot of other things going on at the same time. And Daniel, you know, had cap hole and he also was addicted to drugs for the majority of the series. So there were like some solid reasons why the conversations never happened, but you're always hoping that they would kind of hash things out. And so that was, that was good that that happened to some degree. Yeah. And you, at first I started not liking Flora, right? I started out the series of being like, Oh, this, this girl, you know, who does she think she is? Yeah. She's messing with our guy, Daniel, you know, she's broken his heart. What's up with this? Yeah. But by the third book, you start to really like her and you start to really understand why she did what she did. And, you know, she says, look, I'm hearing stories of you over there being quite the ladies man. She probably doesn't think that he's being faithful, you know? And so she's just, she has her wants and needs and I'm not trying to justify infidelity, obviously, but, (laughs) but you can understand what happened and why, and that's something that, if they wanted to work through, they probably could, but they never even address it. Yeah, Phantology does not recommend or accept infidelity, obviously. But but yeah, I think what you're trying to say is that like these actions are understandable and it's not just some weird square character doing something that doesn't make sense. Like as a human, you understand how these events could happen. Yeah. And so I really liked how they finally got down and had that talk and they didn't resolve everything. Right. And nor did I really want them to be together because I was 
a big fan of Paul and Daniel, you know, uh-huh. and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with how that all went down. But it was just like you were saying, there is finally some resolutions of characters that you wanted to meet more and mm-hmm. share scenes together that finally did get to. Yeah, yeah. This is not a spoiler, but in the next series, Vlora is a main point of view character. Like right away, you know, you're going to know that from page one. And it's a series that's at about 10 years in the future on a different part of the world. So Vlora is someone who grows a lot in that series. And so having read those, it's hard for me to separate those events out and think back to only having read the third because she's pretty good in in that trilogy, I'll say. Hmm. Okay. She she started being a really compelling character, especially with how she started standing up to Tamas and was kind of one of the only people that would stand up to Tamas and call him out his nonsense. Another two other characters that I'm really glad that they got to develop their relationship was Bo and Nyla. Yeah, Bo and Nyla are for sure fan favorites. Definitely. So let, let's hear your take on these. Okay. Negative thing right out the bat was Nyla was another one where I kept expecting her to have a reason why she was gifted the way she was gifted. Yeah, like she's the special and she doesn't have to use gloves and what's going on here. But uh, yeah, still not sure, I guess. Yeah, and maybe there are super fans. So if you are a super fan of the series and can explain why Nyla was this gifted that didn't need to use gloves and was able to you know, stay hidden and... Well, that was the other thing was it seemed like there were so many times in this book where she couldn't really control her powers. I remember once she was like ticked because there was a lady that was flirting with Bo and was treating Nyla like garbage. Yeah. And then she like burnt the back of her dress because she was so angry and she couldn't keep her powers under control. Right. Yeah. She's got like a winter mantle thing going on here a little bit. Yeah. Which makes sense because it's told that the more you interact with the elves, the stronger your passions become, right? Mm-hmm. But why was she able to keep that in check like the rest of her life? And through all these much more traumatic experiences that she went through in the first book, especially, you know, through the abuse that she... Well, wouldn't uh, you just say she, she hasn't used her powers to the extent that she is now? Yeah. There's obviously that that large scale uh, battle where she went through like several thousand people and turned the tide of the war. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. I just it, it seemed like there was a lot more of her not being able to control her powers. But why wasn't she why was she able to control her powers for the first, you know, 20 years of her life going yeah. through much more traumatic experiences? And there might be in world reasons for this. But to me, it just felt kind of weird. I guess. Yeah, she was like drawn out somehow. I, I, I don't know. I mean, anytime you have magic in a book, like, look, we review books where there is magic, right? Yeah. Any book that Vitology is going to review, there is pretty much going to be magic. And magic is literally always a plot device. It's something the author puts in the story in order to drive the story along. And so therefore, they can use it however they would like. And sometimes it's in a way we're like, oh, they've ran out of magic at this crucial time or, oh, they can't control their magic. And sometimes it's like, well, why can't they control it? But at the same time, it's like, well, it's magic. There's no rules around magic. You know, like it, it's that's the point. So yeah. it's it's tough, right? I guess I, I was 
hoping that she would become have a chosen one arc a little bit and i was hoping that that would be done really uniquely where you mm. found out she was the chosen one and then you book two and then she has a one book arc where she suddenly is maybe even yeah. one of the gods reincarnated or something interesting like that but she just is a mary sue a little bit a little bit i can i can see that i think a lot of people really like nyla because they like the idea of, you know she's just like oh a a laundress washer woman and then she gets the powers and she's cool but at the same time you're like well the arc isn't finished like yeah. she needs more and so in my head canon I-, I was trying to come up with reasons why she would have been placed in the palace like in my head i was like maybe the king or the cabal knew that she was gifted and yeah. wanted to keep an eye on her so they put her at some lowly level position in the palace so that they could keep track of her and like kind of watch her and make sure that she didn't go crazy. I don't know. Like I, in my, after I finished book two and we found all this out about her, I started crafting all these theories as to why her character had the backstory that she had. And then we just didn't really get anything with it. Yeah. So, so two good, I mean, their relationship is good, right. And, and they're always kind of exciting, but at the same time, it's like, uh, it's almost like there's too many characters on screen and we weren't quite able to wrap up. Because some characters had really nice arcs, like Tamis's arc is really good, and by the end, like like his death was really well earned, and it was emotional but satisfying. I mean, I just finished my rewatch of the Marvel movies for the second time, and might have cried a little bit when Iron Man died in Endgame, and so I mean, I think you have like something similar. Yeah, okay. Come on, people have seen Endgame by now, right? Like, does that Thanos Thanos doesn't demand our silence on that one? anymore but uh but i think tamis has has a similar thing here where it's it's you know the perfect time for him to die and it makes a lot of sense but at the same time you don't want him to die because you really like him by this point yeah okay so let's talk about a super big positive and that was tamis right one of the the best arc in the series for sure right where you see him you see him at the beginning of the series almost as a butcher right you see him taking out all of the nobility and killing a lot of people starting a, what could be a civil war. And you really disliked him in the first book, right? Yeah. Well, for half of the first book, he was somebody that started out as I thought he was going to be the villain, Uh but he ended up being uh, one of my favorites throughout the first book. And by the ending of the series, by far my favorite character. And he was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to, not just sacrifice his life, but sacrifice, you know, what he had worked for, right? To for the good of the people. And not just sacrifice his life in dying, but sacrifice his life in, in working for the better of Adra, right? Yeah, talk about a patriot. Yeah. I mean he's the he's the per, he's perfect for the covers with this very French Revolution esque type feel of this you know grizzled guy who's willing to do anything for his country and yeah yeah the the ultimate adrin i would love a prequel series if mcclellan ever wants to write more of this i would love to see some early campaigns that tamis went on might they dang might exist in short stories oh do they i'm not certain but I know there's a ton of short stories, so it's very plausible that they do. So I'm, I'm sure some big fans can answer that question. 
Okay. So yeah, so, yeah. So hop hop on Discord and recommend uh, what Josh should read there to get that. So let's talk about his death because I guess we're just kind of jumping all. I guess we're focusing more on characters than we are on plot for this episode. I think we can talk about some of the larger. We can talk about some of the larger plot points if we miss anything. But I did just kind of want to like talk through the characters and and let's see who we liked, what we liked, and what we didn't. Yeah. So his death was. I was happy he died it was it was kind of that type feeling where i i didn't feel like his arc would be completed without him dying you know Mm. did you suspect he was going to make that sacrifice before it happened did it catch you by surprise it didn't catch me by surprise really i i didn't expect it like right when it happened because the whole ending just kind of happened so fast yeah which we can talk about a little bit more maybe but it it just kind of felt like he, okay, boom, now he's dead, you know, which was fine because that's kind of how battles are, right? And I think that there's sure. a lot of other things in the series when that was portrayed realistically. I think once his hand got blown off, you knew that like, he's probably not coming back from this. Yeah. This, this is it. This is the climax. It just wouldn't make sense for him to... I mean, he could survive and re- go into retirement, but that doesn't seem like his character, right? Like, this is not a guy who's ever going to be okay with retiring or, or taking a break unless he dies. And the fact that he got to die with Taniel, you know, there, protecting Taniel, uh-huh. was, really sad. It was really satisfying to me. Because you always knew that they loved each other, right? But... They had really unique ways of showing that love. <laughs> and this is, again, I'm, so Daniel and Tamas, father and son duo, they weren't on screen a whole lot throughout the series until this one. So uh, it sounds like you really liked them when they were together in Autumn Republic. Yeah, because one of the other big scenes when they were together was in the first book when he ordered him to go kill, when Tamas ordered Daniel to go kill Bo. To go, and- right. What a dirt bag, you know, right? And I, I understand that like Bo was going to kill, you know, was might have been compelled to go kill uh, Tamis. So I understand that, but yeah, still kind of a dirt bag move. So by the time we really get good scenes where I enjoyed them together, was really pretty much the third book, I think. What did you think of Daniel surviving? That was a little bit of a point. Like you could have seen possibly both of them dying and it was a little unclear for a little bit and most of the country thinks that Daniel did die and he takes that opportunity to say I'm gonna kind of move past all of these events and, and forge my own life here so like how'd that sit with you did that seem like the appropriate ending for Daniel's arc I thought it was appropriate yeah I thought it would have been really brave had Brian McClellan done a little Christopher Nolan type move and left that ambiguous, you know? Oh, if he had survived or not, just... Maybe give a little bit of a hint that he survived, okay. you know? The coin is still spinning, we're not sure. Or the top. the top. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Or Calpol does some. you know, like you spend one more scene of Calpol and somebody walks up to her and she smiles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because Calpol was never... Sure viewpoint character so i think that would have been cool to like have the last scene of the series uh-huh. be uh-huh. a viewpoint from her and her smiling something like that where 
you're pretty sure that he's alive, but it's not explicitly stated. Yeah, that that would be interesting. Have we have we seen anything like that? Like a is huge that- thing like that in in other books? I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, there were some definitely unanswered things towards the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. The TV show has since spoiled that a little bit. Yeah. I'm thinking of like, I mean, spoilers for A Song of Ice and Fire, but you know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that would have been cool. But as it was, it was like, okay, that, that works. I wasn't upset with it. I was happy with it. It wasn't as satisfying as Tamis's arc, but it was... It was good. I was happy with it. How'd you like Taniel and Capol together? Sounds like you you did like them quite a bit. I am like, I like the idea of them, but sometimes it just seems like there's not like quite enough of a relationship that's been fleshed out. So you're reading it and as a reader, you're like, I believe that they have a good relationship because it seems like they do, but I haven't like explicitly seen like, a whole lot of details here. Like I maybe want like the backstory of how they met originally or, or or something a little more than that, but maybe like, did you not need that? Were you okay with it as it was? I started being more okay with it when I realized that we weren't really going to get that. And when I realized that Calpol is like, is damaged, right? She has severe PTSD and she's mute because of it or because I think it was implied that she screamed so much that she lost her ability to speak or something like that. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure on that one. But that person, like, you know, somebody that has something that traumatic happened to them, right, still deserves to be loved. And Daniel is someone that can understand that because he's been through a lot of traumatic things and sure. witnessed a lot yeah. of traumatic things. And they were going to stick by each other no matter what. And I think for the first little part of their relationship, he felt that he would be taking advantage of her because he felt that he was in a position of power, right? And didn't want to take advantage, use his power from saving her to exploit that, right? Um, Because he's a pretty genuinely good guy. But by the time you realize that Cal Polo is really the powerful one and could snap him like a twig, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. he's able to, to let go a little bit more and, yeah, I think that I think that was a really good way that McClellan introduced Capole, like giving you kind of small doses of like how powerful she is. And by the end of the book, you're still like maybe a little bit thinking what the heck is going on with Capole. Like she can do all this stuff and the other magic is explained pretty well, but Capole seems to have this whole other thing and we're not sure what this is. So I think... I guess maybe just I I would have liked more of a viewpoint from her in this series. It might have helped me understand their relationship a little bit more because, yeah, like I for sure agree with you. I think they are good for each other. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. But at the same time, you kind of have to read between the lines to really get there. This is another this is like a similar criticism I have with a a lot of the Wheel of Time romances where I think the characters are good for each other, like most of them maybe not all of them some of the romances i I don't like as much in that series but at the same time you don't see a whole lot of that on camera and you kind of have to just like assume that it's happened when you're not watching and that it's it is good but i struggle with that i don't know like maybe we just felt like we didn't want to actually write the romance out and and let the reader imagine it instead it's kind of 
the general rule is show don't tell except for when it comes to romances <laughs> i guess yeah maybe i don't know maybe that's what i'm saying the romances that i do like 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 give me some quoth dinner or something like oh uncle, my god you know back and forth <laughs> no, banter and no, no. i mean you quoth dinner as a good example of a romance well, it's a romance I'm really invested in. I don't think it's necessarily... Right. So that's the opposite example because I don't think that that is a good romance for the characters, but it's a romance I'm really invested in because we've seen so much of it on camera and the witty banter back and forth and all the pining is like written really well to the point where I really want it to be good, but at the same time it's frustrating when it's not. So that's a romance I'm more invested in. So my crazy crackpot theory in the maybe 10, 15% of the book where we were wondering who the other half of the God was, was that okay. it was going to be Calpol. Hmm. That would have been quite the twist. So in this theory, like, is she still, she's like the good half or something? Yeah. So the other half of him was going to be Calpol and that's why she was so powerful and powerful enough to take on Crestmere. That was kind of what the theory I was developing. And then nothing. And then we never really got to explain besides a comment about, oh, she's the most powerful sorcerer that I've ever seen from that other land that we don't really know anything about. Dionys? Petrasta? Yeah. Yep. Just you wait, Josh. <laughs> the the confidence with which you said those names and pronounced them makes me, yeah, uh, yeah. certainly be more important. I mean, look, I'm not trying to spoil the second trilogy, but it takes place in a different part of the world a few years later with some characters you've seen before. Okay. So yeah, if that's not, I mean, you'll get that from very early on in the trilogy. So, so that, okay. That was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, did you have any more on your, uh, on your half of brood theory? Yeah. I, I was either thinking it was going to be Nyla or Calpol. And so were you satisfied with the way it did turn out or were you thinking, um, I mean, this, Nyla, Nyla or Capold, that, that would have been interesting. It would have been tricky. I don't know what the story would have turned into then. I think there's a story that exists where, where that's written in. Yeah, it would certainly be different than this ending. Right. Well, because this ending, Claremont wasn't really a bad guy. Like he kind of what he was a tool, right? <laughs> like, yeah, just using mortals as to play games with right so in that right, sense he right bad. but he wasn't specifically malevolent towards anybody sure beyond I, I don't know he wasn't like evil right maybe he was but but i mean other than like the fact that the god brood was more evil and was you know killed the other gods taking their power plan to kill kresmir take his power and i guess control all of the nine and so that is evil, but you mean like the mortal shell was maybe not evil? Yeah, and so what you saw on screen, like Claremont wasn't really a super villain. You know, he was an antagonistic force. You didn't really know sure. what to too much throughout the series. I was kind of bored with all the politics, to be honest. So that's one criticism that I would have. So the characters are fantastic. I think we still need to talk about Adamant and his family. We'll get to that. But outside of the characters, the plot was good. It was a cool setting, a cool French Revolution type of plot. And overall, like the main arc of the story was was fairly solid and you were always following along. It was always pretty exciting. 
However, there are all of these subplots that were just kind of subsumed subsumed by the main plot to the point where like, okay, there's this subplot and I don't necessarily know if I believe that it matters all that much because I think it will just kind of like wrap up and it's like pushing us along and we're getting close to fulfilling the main plot. But at the same time, like, I don't think this thing really matters all that much. And I feel like that's where McClellan has really gotten better at an author as an author in his next series where the pieces come together a little bit more. And so we're forming a more complex plot puzzle. And this was more just like fairly straightforward. And we were fine with just attacking this plot from one angle. Yeah. Well, and the whole mystery of who was skimming the, the gunpowder, you know, oh, gosh. I mean? Yeah. It's like, enough. I didn't love that. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. it's a way to move characters from A to B and to provide some conflict and to have characters doing something. Yeah. It's like, how much do we think that this Helsinki general dude is really going to cause any large problems, right? Like, we're just going to take care of him eventually. It's, yeah. it's not everything that... Yeah, a lot of the subplots and the conflicts there, you think, eh, we're going to defeat this thing. It, it's not a huge deal. Right. Other than, I mean, I, I will say, I think the one subplot that was maybe a little more compelling to me was adamant trying to find Joseph taken by the slavers. Yeah. Like that but, didn't work out. And that was like a major thing. And, and that was a, a fail. That was, that was a negative. I know. And that was what I was really, ho- I was really hoping that this book would be a large scale battle between gods and then adamant, like figuring out how to get his son back. And it wasn't or like, he didn't really do all that much with his son. Yeah, it didn't. That had like no effect on the overall story. He he just saw his son was this warden guy. Yeah. And then was like, Bo, can you take my son out? And then. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And I think that might have even happened off camera. So we didn't even really get the full effect. Is is that right? No, I I think uh, he I think Daniel might have killed him or something. I think he was like a warden that was set up ambushing them. Or something. And he sees that he's missing a finger. And he sees that he's missing a finger. Yeah. Right. And it's like, oh, oh my gosh. And so really good twist, right? And I liked it. And I thought it added a lot to the feel of the story where it really kind of went at more of a grimdark thing. Like, you know, the sun got turned into this evil incarnation and we're not going to be able to undo this. And it, it totally didn't work out. We did not reunite the family. So I thought that was good for the story. I mean, obviously, like, sad, but at the same time, it it really moved the story along and was satisfying in kind of a darker way. Yeah, but we we didn't get to really sit in it all that much. You know, we didn't really get to have navel-gazing from Adamant about what it feels like to lose a son, Mm. right? Because there wasn't enough time, because... The, the everything else was moving along too quickly maybe yeah i don't know but that that's the kind of stuff that i think would have moved that from being a good storyline like you were saying of okay here's something that doesn't work out to being wow mcclellan is really a master of character mm-hmm. work you know which i yeah. think characters yeah. are the strongest part of the book don't get me wrong but for how much i wanted to like adamant because he felt like he was supposed to be the grounding person 
in the series, we didn't get a whole lot of time to really experience his emotions. I mean, there's different ways to deal with this type of character that, like you say, is the common man, hero, boots on the ground type of guy. Like he's not powered, but he's smart and he can do things or he has a perspective that our magicians don't have. And therefore he's got this advantage. There's ways to do this character. So it's not like every character has to be done in the same way. But one way I really like the character is if they do something in the heat of the battle where all the magic is being flung around, that makes a small difference, that turns the tide of the thing. And Adamat certainly does a lot of things, but you would hope that like a lot of these plots, these subplots, like I'm looking for my son, he's into a warden, that's cool. But then like, okay, this is going to lead into like, you know, figuring out the thing or it's going to, you know, he's going to trip up the God at the major part because he's chasing or, after his son. I don't know, something yeah. like that ties or if, in more. Or if his son was going to be critical to the God's plan succeeding and he had to kill his son in order to yeah. prevent that from happening. Or the something fact like that he that. was turned yeah. into a warden, you know, like, oh my gosh, this, you know, my son was turned into a warden. Therefore, I realized that, you know, a regular guy could be a god and we put it all together, something like that. But yeah, it, it just didn't quite get there. It was sad and it was well done and I thought it was needed, but it didn't quite make it to the S tier, top of the line. This is how you should handle loss that a character experiences. Yeah. Hey, what does S stand for in the tier list? It's oh, like I don't super. Know. It's like super, superb. Supreme. We're going to do a Dresden Files tier list ranking once Battleground comes out, probably in about a month or so. We'll we'll think about Battleground for a little bit, and then we're putting our first ever Phantology tier list. So I'll have that answer for you by that time. <laughs> Phantology so original with our tier list coming out. All right, we'll have F tier Phantology at the top. I like it. So we we talked through some characters. I think we can... Were there any other plot points that you felt like are worth mentioning? I mean, I'm kind of looking through. So so the beginning of the book is fairly standard. We talked about the whole black powder skimming thing that we didn't like. The middle is a lot of fighting. There is some turning of the tides here with Nyla going through and killing a whole bunch of people. That was interesting. They find Taniel. They get through the whole thing with Helsinka, the Kez negotiate peace doesn't go very well, but then they find out the Kez are all been taken out internally anyway. Well, well, let, let, let me pause right there. I really did like that Tamas made this mistake of thinking that the Kez violated the, the peace, uh, the treaty talks, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought it showed a lot of his, a lot of uh, weakness that he didn't show before that he was kind of infallible a little bit before that in terms of his battle prowess. Oh you know, yeah. Everything seemed to kind of work out for him. I mean, oh, I yeah. Know that yeah. Every him. move was correct. Yeah. And this was a blunder, right? He messed this up and he, he got played, right? And he's got some, he's got some blinders and the Kez are certainly a blind spot because of yeah, his background. Because of his wife and, and, and Nick's so, loss and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I really liked, that was one of the subplots. I guess that was at that point the main plot of the book. But I think it was handled really well with uh, you think it's the Kaz betraying it, but it wasn't. And 
there were clues and adamant that was one time where adamant figured that out right and was played a pretty critical role in the in the narrative adamant also figures out that sheris was you know the one that was that tried to kill him and and then she got locked away he uh and then he also puts together you know that that claremont is brood so i guess yeah. maybe that i i guess what i was saying earlier was that i just I like that Adamant figured this out, but I wish that the subplot with his family had tied in more to this. Right. So maybe I take back some of what I was saying about how I wanted the boots on the ground guy to be the one figuring things out a little bit more. That happened. So good. I am now saying I'm retroactively saying that I liked that. But what I wanted to clarify what I wanted to have happen was for the other part of his plot to tie into that. Yeah. Was to have that subplot matter more as opposed to adamant as a character mattering more. So then, I mean, the, the war is pretty much wrapped up. We discover that Adam is still alive. He took over Charlemagne's body. Tamis comes back. There's this big parade. Everything looks good. And then Claremont reveals that he's brood. And then he's going to pretty much take over after Tumblr wins the election. And Sheris comes in. And then, you know, this is really like the whole big climactic avalanche. And this is, I mean, the, the climax was good, right? Like the mm-hmm. action w- was pretty big. We go back to the, the palace, which is nice because that's kind of where it all started. That was really cool. The script has been flipped here and Tamis is really kind of fighting on the other side. Yeah. In, in some is, sense. He, well, he's fighting to maintain the status quo that he is now established. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. and. It, it seems pretty hopeless there for a second. How are you going to defeat this god that we are not, you know, nearly as powerful as? And you get Tamis's hand being, was it crushed or chopped or what What happened? I think it's just blown off. Yeah. You know, big, uh, don't remember the exact, exactly what happens there. But yeah, once he lost the hand, I kind of knew, okay, he's, you know, he's not getting the hand back and he's pretty committed here. So I think he's dead. Yeah. There's a good moment, you know, right as Tamis is dying. You know, the last thing he says to Daniel is, you know, your mother says hello. That's great, right? That I mean, was, yeah, I think I almost teared up at that part. Yeah, but, if if a book about the French Revolution and flintlock fantasy is going to make you tear up and cry, it would be this moment. I, It's still hard for me to believe that Calpole and Daniel, like, were actually able to take out this god like figure though right that's the thing for me with the ending here i thought the ending was cool the action was really big but at the same time i was like okay there's gods we've known about this i mean we saw kresimir obviously since the end of the first book but now here they are sprung on us right in the middle of adro and it's also this new god and this new god has two halves to it and all of a sudden we learn that it's been able to consume the powers of the other gods and therefore it's the new big bad and all that's like at the very end of the third book it is the big bad and we have to kill this thing like it's a twist but at the same time i don't think it was set up enough and the way that they kill it was with the spear tip right that had it's like the the red tipped the same thing that uh, the same type of bullet that was able to shoot kresimir yeah but it was it was just kind of oh that's here now you know what i mean 
yeah it, it all it all just seemed to come together a little bit too nicely without being foreshadowed enough or being you didn't really know why they were now able to take out this god it just happened by yeah. chance by luck i don't know and to be fair i'm always a person who wants to know more and when we start to get into like the lore of this fantasy series i want to know about the gods i want to know you know okay mm-hmm. what's the god pantheon look like and how are they related to everyone and we get a little bit of this but i want to know like what exactly are their powers what can they do what can't they do and maybe that's because i'm just a huge sanderson nerd and and that's what i'd like to get in my uh deities we'll say but this just wasn't quite satisfying enough to me well, because so this is like the thing and it, it wasn't quite well defined enough so what we do know right is that kresimir started gathering all these super powerful privileged and this god brood was they're born i guess conjoined twins and he separated them right and yeah took them so, away so, from his okay. parents from their parents but this was all info dumped during the climax pretty much yeah right? so so maybe yeah maybe again i should backtrack a little bit it is explained to Briefly. some extent but i guess what i'll what I'm going to settle on is if this is going to be the main thing, then I need it to be a thing more throughout the earlier stages of the series as well. I wasn't satisfied with it just coming towards the end and then having to accept that this is now the the main, like these are where all the stakes are at. Yeah. And with how they take, take uh, chairs out, you know, of just like now we have this kryptonite, type thing that happens to be in the room and we can kill her with it. Yeah. But my, my whole thing with this whole series is that the plot is good enough and the characters are really, really good. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters are bordering on exceptional and the plot doesn't do too much to distract from that. When we yeah. get down and, and nitpick it, it yeah. seems to come apart easier than I'd like, but the characters are the best thing about this series. And it's very likely that we miss some details. I mean, oh, yeah. we're just fans of the series. Uh, I, we've only read them once. So it, it's not something we are, we know all the details on. So please, you know, hop on, on discord, let us know what we missed. We, we totally welcome that. Our opinions are really just from surface level fandom reading. Um, so, so there's very likely some errors in, in our nitpicking, but I agree with you, and I think the plot does enough to put the characters into positions where they can shine, and that alone is well worth reading the series. Yeah. You can do a lot worse than this series. It's not going to be the first, you know, five fantasy book series that you should pick up if you're new to fantasy. But for Flintlock, you know, fun action packed series, somebody that's read a lot of other fantasy and is looking for another fun read. This is an easy recommend. So, Josh, are you excited for more? Sounds like the rest of your 2020 is already pretty much booked with your uh, reading schedule. But you are planning on reading Gods of Blood and Powder maybe like 2021? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's put that in the docket. Early 2021, yeah. I'd say. All right, yeah. Josh is down for... With, with for my work schedule, pretty much all of January, I have like a lot of uh, very tedious work that I can 
burn through uh, audiobooks while I work. Fantastic. Yeah. Look for lots of Phantology episodes in January. I, I, I get to have the privilege of sending out about 20,000 ACA forms for my, this is a little sneak peek into my personal life. And yeah. so while, while I'm uh, printing and packaging and shipping those, I can be rocking the audiobooks. Yeah. And if you want to know what ACA forms are, we're not telling you on this podcast. So look, look for that extra detail somewhere else. But yeah, uh, I'm excited to read it and I'm a fan of the series. I'm glad I read it. So thanks for, thanks for the recommend, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you're saying, um, I think this first trilogy is, is probably something that I would recommend to someone who has read several other fantasy series and likes them, likes more of this. I don't know, like it's not super grim dark, but it's like a little bit darker fantasy. It doesn't always work out super well, but once you've read a few and you're like, wow, I, I like fantasy. I'd like to read maybe like a different type of fantasy. Yeah. Read, uh, read some rifle powder snorting fantasy. It's different. It's cool. Yeah. You get some cocaine and there cocaine and dry guns and, uh, some world shaping events and you got yourself a fun ride. So that's a wrap for the book. We always, uh, end phantology episodes with our worst of the best segment where we talk about something we really liked about the book but like one minor thing that was great but at the same time it's like ah, i wish it could have been like a little bit greater so did you have one i mean i know we kind of talked about some things we liked and we didn't like already a lot of what we've talked about was the worst of the best but i will pick one that we didn't talk about which was the final conference confrontation with jolene if you're going to have an epilogue i don't really like that he spent his epilogue on tying up this and that didn't really need to be tied up. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it should have been. I think it should have been tied up because it was a loose end. But like the epilogue is is the epilogue. Yeah. The epilogue to the entire trilogy. You have the villain from book one is being that's already been pretty much taken care of and taken out of the equation for a lot of practical purposes is what you're going to spend your epilogue on. I didn't didn't love it. I did like it because you got to see Cowpole and Taniel we're going to be doing their thing and we're going to be happy. Yeah. Um, I'll say my worst, the best one. Okay. We kind of already talked about this. I, I thought some of the subplots were maybe not as strong. I was maybe looking for more of a class type of struggle in one of the subplots because this for this uh, was very much the French revolution. And obviously you have the common people, the bourgeoisie, rising up and to and taking the power and just deposing of the kings so well, anyway more I of a military coup though than like a bourgeois revolution yeah know. but like did it have to be only a military coup yeah is right maybe what i'm what i'm thinking like yeah sh- certainly the military was involved but practically if this were to happen wouldn't the common and i guess like rickard represents that a little bit but maybe like adamant could have been i don't know leading some like group of ska or middle class guys in some mission i i don't know yeah. like a, a little bit more of a like a view into into uh adro a little bit more yeah i i think i would have liked that too good call anyway thank you for listening to this episode of phantology this is a wrap for a series always exciting when we can conclude a series and get that under our belt we'd like to i mean I'll sleep easier at night when we have a bunch of these uh, series all done and we don't have all these loose ends because I'm too much of a red type of personality. But thanks for listening. If you like Phantology, 
check us out again on www.phantologybooks.com and please get on discord and tell us your suggestions what you'd like us to read in the future if you'd like to support us and help us continue to grow and upgrade our episodes and our setups etc then consider supporting on patreon consider looking into the audible partnership and if you'd like to spend some money but don't want to support phantology then why don't you check out uh, booksforprisoners.net where they do some fantastic things uh, for people who are in need so thanks josh um any uh any final words from you any uh any final powder mage quips or anything thanks Stephen, for uh it was really you got that got me to read the series so thanks for thanks for getting me to read it i appreciate it all right thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next time